As the body count mounts, and as the grief-stricken parents of missing children watch every newscast, just waiting in a surreal state of paralyzing terror for some reporter to utter their child's name, Gacy sits in a room in Sir Mac Memorial Hospital, the gears of his mind churning as he tries to figure out just how exactly this is all going to play out. Reflecting back on the events of the last week, going over and over in his mind what he had told the police in all those statements, contemplating whether or not he had played his hand correctly. You see, the creep was a man of purpose. He did nothing during his adult life that wasn't premeditated. Every move he made was done with a particular end result that he sought or craved in mind. Whether it be to marry a woman named Marilyn, to position himself to become a linchpin in her father's burgeoning fast food restaurant empire, which he did, ultimately managing three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants, which were of course staffed with plenty of young men. He then opened a club of sorts in the basement of his marital home, where he would invite his young male employees to come and drink booze and play pool. Sound familiar? The teenage girls, well, their invites must have gotten lost in the mail. He would of course ply these young men with booze and then make a move on them. And if they were down, great. If they weren't, well, I was just joking. Just testing your morals, kid. Or such as when he joined the local JC chapter to meet other local businessmen. But more importantly, again, to put himself in close proximity to young men that he could make sexual advances on. Because the gay scene was not a thing in Waterloo, Iowa. So he'd lure the young men to his home with promises of booze and stag films. Again, sound familiar? Always plotting, always with a plan. When he got nailed in 1968 for what was charged as sodomy, but was unequivocally the rape of Donald Voorhees Jr., he denied it vehemently, claiming that it was a political move by the kid's father, as Voorhees Sr. had opposed the creep's run for the president of the JC chapter. Plenty of people bought this line of bullshit and stood behind him, professing that the charges were cooked up. Before the trial, Casey had paid one of his young employees to assault the younger Voorhees to discourage him from testifying against him. To no avail, shit plan, because Donald ran directly to the cops and reported that he was physically assaulted by a kid he identified as Russell Schroeder, who was arrested the following day, and of course, who folded like a cheap suit and gave Gacy up immediately. The state's attorney in turn lopped a couple more charges on the creep. A man with a plan he was. Only that time, his plan backfired and he was convicted of the sodomy charge and was sentenced to 10 years of which he only did 18 months. Again, this was orchestrated by Gacy as he morphed into a model prisoner, which was parlayed into an exceptionally early parole. Gacy did nothing haphazardly. It was all well thought out. And so you better believe that now, as the heat was bearing down on Gacy, his mind was working on overdrive to figure a way out of this thing. All of the maneuvering he did with the boys of the Delta team, part of the plan. Instructing Cram and Rossi what to say when they were questioned, part of the plan. His lawsuit against displays for 750,000 and more importantly, to stop the surveillance? Part of the plan. His supposed confession at his lawyer's office? 
part of the plan. Yet, he was spinning out of control with the Valium and the booze. It was clouding his ability to think clearly. He was still working it nonetheless. Pounding 130 milligrams of Valium before he decides to openly hand a bag of joints to Lance Jacobson at the Shell gas station in front of the men who watched his every move for 10 days, knowing it would get him busted. The fake heart attack, which would land him at the hospital, where they would of course run a battery of tests, including a blood draw and a tox screen, which would indicate the drugs were in his system. The immediate confession as soon as he's returned to the station from the hospital and charged with the murder of Peast, still high on Valium, which he could now prove. Those weren't knowing involuntary statements. Shit, I don't even remember making them. Yeah, the creep had a game plan, all right. Nothing was done without thinking it out beforehand. But now, he thought as he sat in his padded cell. It might have fucked this one up. I don't think that they're buying the Hanley bullshit. And why the hell ain't they arresting Cram and Rossi? This ain't going as planned. Yeah, well, Gacy didn't take into account that planted receipt because he couldn't have. He didn't know it existed. And it was this unaccounted for receipt which ultimately gets the cops back into his house on the 21st. So on December 28th, Gacy tried to call it a day, or a life is a more appropriate description, as he tried to hang himself with a bedsheet from the hospital, cowering under his bed. That plan bombed as well. Quite the losing streak for the creep. Too bad he couldn't have figured out a way to do the rope trick on himself. Nope, he wasn't getting out of this one that easy. He's going to have to answer for that nightmare that existed in his crawl space. And for the first time in his life, the creep had run out of plans. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 21. Time is fleeting, and madness takes its toll. We checked out last episode on the morning of the 29th, with Gacy's attorneys filing a battery of motions at the courthouse and displays. Much to the chagrin of the media, the creep did not make the perp walk into the courtroom on December 29th. It had been decided by the powers that be, for his own safety, that he would not be transported from Cermak on this particular day. I'm fairly certain that the true reason that Gacy wasn't brought over here was because the courthouse in Desplaines was small and they wouldn't be able to deal with the anticipated crush of media and gawkers, in addition to the fact that nobody wanted to deal with that bullshit. Amaranti, yeah, he could have shook his fist and stomped his feet and demanded that Gacy be brought over, but in the law game, you have to pick your battles. And considering that nothing of real consequence was going down on this particular date, this was not the occasion to cash in a valuable chit and demand that his client appear. Over at Mary Hill Cemetery, Kozenzak and his band of miserable cops charged with the task of sifting through a 30-foot high pile of dirt are back at it, continuing to comb through the enormous haystack in search of the needle known as Rob Peace's body. 
It's a painstakingly slow process as it basically boils down to shifting the dirt from here to there. After hours upon hours of transferring dirt, the giant mound has finally been moved. And yet, there's no sign of Rob's body. Kozenzak's gut had failed him this time, leaving him with a man in custody with no actual evidence that he had committed the crime. You must be saying to yourself, but the confessions? Well, maybe. But the bottom line is that there was no memorialized record of any of Gacy's statements. No recordings, no handwritten signed confession, nothing in existence to actually prove he had said those words, aside from Albrecht and Hackmeister saying that he did. These are exactly the types of situations that experienced criminal defense attorneys devour whole in court. It's just not very good evidence. And the cops knew it, and so did the state's attorney's office. They needed to find Rob Peast, and they needed it done sooner rather than later, as the motion to dismiss the indictment loomed ominously on the horizon. The basis of that motion being that they have charged Gacy for a murder that they don't know for certain has actually occurred. No body, no crime. It's a pretty strong argument for any defense attorney to have tucked in their back pocket. Finding Rob Peast was of paramount importance. And Kozenzak, well, he was fresh out of ideas where to look. Meanwhile, back at 8213 Somerdale, Dr. Stein continues to oversee the excavation of the graveyard. The body count going into the 29th stood at 21 victims, and the evidence techs are going back in for another gruesome day on the job. They are officially back on task at 9.45 a.m. The first course of action was to chip away at a section of concrete with a hammer and chisel. At 11.20 a.m., the remains of victim number 22 are discovered under the remains of victim 21. Two blue socks were found at the pelvic area, and a material similar to cloth was located within the mouth of the victim. A black rubber shower clog was also found under the ribcage area. No ligature, no plastic bag. At 1 p.m., victim number 23 was uncovered adjacent to victims 21 and 22. The body was positioned face down. A pair of underwear were found in place. No ligature, no cloth in the mouth, no plastic bag. Victim 24 was discovered at 2.35 p.m. Cloth-type material was found in the mouth, and two white metal jewelry-type chains were located in the neck area. A cloth shirt was also found in the area of the body. No ligature, no plastic bag. Also at 2.35 p.m., the body of victim number 25 was exhumed from the concrete area that the other team had been chipping away at since 9.45 a.m. A knee-length athletic cloth sock with three red stripes located in the mouth was recovered. No ligature, no other clothes, no plastic bag. Body number 26 was unearthed at 3.45 p.m., under where the remains of victims 23 and 24 were buried. Under close examination, a cloth material was found in the mouth. No ligature, no plastic bag, no clothes. At 4.15 p.m., the final body of the day was uncovered. Cloth material was found around the lower portion of the skull. Dark pants with a leather belt and a metal buckle and two dark socks were located on the body. 
After the 26th victim was recovered, Dr. Stein shut down the excavation for the day. At this juncture, approximately three quarters of the crawl space had been covered by the hardworking evidence techs. All of the day's remains were transported to the Forensic Institute for Stein to begin to try and identify them. At this point, on the 29th, 27 victims have been recovered from the crawl, one from the garage, from under the concrete, and two remains have been pulled from the Displains River. The latest horrible news is six bodies exhumed. This makes it a total now of 27. The condition of the bodies? Uh, six skeletalized, one well-preserved. I can't see any marks of violence. Any no. clothing at all? Yes, some. Had some clothing on, yes. He reportedly said 27 were buried in here. Do you think you've reached the limit? I don't know who you mean by he. Mr. Casey uh, reportedly said this. I, I know nothing about it. It's hearsay. Are there any what more I can tell you is what I have seen, what I've examined. I examined 27 dead human beings. How about the one that was well-preserved? Any guess on how long he's been dead? No, I will not venture a guess until I have thoroughly examined the remains. Is there, there, is there any evidence of any further remains under the house? Um, I believe there is some evidence. And I'm basing that, of course, upon the fact that some of the terrain there is soft, muddy, and that's about it. How it's, much more of the house do you have to search? Well, I believe the chief could answer that. Dodd, uh, how far, how much do you have to go yet? Uh, I would say uh, we're going to be making an examination of uh, at least the last uh, order uh, of the premises, the crawl space. Digging as usual through the trench system? Will you work tomorrow? Trench system? Yes, we'll be back tomorrow. What about uh, Sunday and Monday? Uh, house will be secured. We'll be back on Tuesday if necessary. Dr. Stein, how are you coming with the identification process? We will start the identification tomorrow morning. Meaning what? Strictly dental identification. Tuesday, I'll have a conference with my anthropologist and we will do some work on bones. Then also we will x-ray the remains. Any idea when you'll have anything definitive to report? The body? I, do, the I body, do not know at all. The body if found, I have it, I, the people certainly would know that. The body found in the Displains River last night, uh, there was a report that there was a positive identification on that. You're waiting to release that. Do you have an identification I, of that? This is an entirely different jurisdiction. I know nothing about the remains in the river or the findings. So I can't answer the well-preserved body that you found. Was that of a young boy? Uh, I don't know if it's a young boy or not, but let's say it was not an old person. Were you trying to identify it with pictures you had taken elsewhere or someone had taken? Oh, I don't think you could. No, you cannot. No. Chief Dobbs, has there been any response on this belt buckle evidence you found? Uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, I've been in touch with uh, my North Investigation Section, and uh, they haven't received any. They've received uh, a few calls, but uh, uh, nothing uh, that we can tie together with. Sheriff Elrod, do you have any response to the limited gag order that was uh, set forth in court today in this plains? We've been maintaining uh, what you might call a limited gag order. We are not saying anything that we're not sure of, and we're trying to preserve the crime scene, and we're turning over all the evidence that we have to the medical examiner and to the state's attorney. Sheriff Elrod, are you now convinced that uh, Gacy had no accomplices 
I'm not convinced of anything. We're continuing our investigation. As you can imagine, the press is eating this story up and simply cannot get enough information. The competition between the competing news outlets is fierce as they battle each other to be the first to report breaking news. This part of the case is fascinating because of the relationships that are leveraged as far as reporters go, who are perpetually always in search of a good leak source. Because as twisted as it is, everyone is trying to get fat off this case. The lawyers, the cops, the judges, the politicians, the press, and worst of all, the creep. I also know, and let's be realistic, that I think you're going to get rich off of it anyway. Irregardless. Oh, okay. I all of it. I don't want any of it. And I, I thought about it too. Of course, I, you know more about it than I do because I'm not, I'm not a criminal lawyer. I don't know anything about that end of it. To me, for him to come up and say hello to me and sign a goddamn contract and get his ass out of here. I, I've already set up checks with every, with every officer that sits on me now. I had told him that to talk to you about the money. I don't want you to wait that long. I don't want you to. The reason I'm, I'm asking, uh, pushing for, for Gabriel to come in here and get Clarence so that Gabriel can walk in here without you. Anything will, will expand all by himself. You know, whatever the deal that he cut, he's got to cut an open-end deal with the, with the publisher. The down front money is fine, but how much are they totally offering? Or do you want to brace it on a royalty fee, which is fine? Uh, the movie and all that other shit that they want to put together. But I also think that there's almost $10 million there. I'll, I'll tell him what he can and cannot tell you. I realize if you come up, if, if they offer a million up front, half of that goes to the author, all right. If you would go ahead and sign that guy that wants to give a million, it's McGraw Hill. McGraw Hill is part of American. I don't think you could get anything better. Maybe more money, but it depends on how how sharp Gabriel is in tying down the end of the contract. The the front money, of course, you can use it, but I I would think that you'd probably have three hundred thousand dollars to work with, which to me would would relieve my my anxiety about you guys not having money to work with because I, I don't want anything to happen. And I know goddamn well that uh, the hours that you're putting in here could probably, the money you really cannot compensate because I, I'm actually taking like a year of your life away from you. And which one is in longer? But I, I do feel that the three or four hundred thousand dollars, I don't think it'd be more than three hundred thousand. Even if they offer you a million up front, I think there's about a quarter of a million that they would be able to put in the fund for you but it would at least alleviate some problems. And maybe, if nothing else, take some of the taxation off YouTube guys and give, you could spread it out. I, like I told you, I don't give a damn if you hire investigators for every little thing. Spread the damn thing out and, and, and build it up. The, the only, you know, my own convictions and my own ideas were, I've got a lot of stamina, I've got a lot of strength, and I've got a lot of firm convictions, and I have faith. If the faith goes, then I don't have nothing. But I have faith, and what you're doing, and I, I just know that things are going to be all right. I'll tell you right now, the, the biggest thing I fear, and I, I will not do no time. I will not go to prison. I would rather die than go to prison. And I don't want no, no, no deals cut that way. I told you that in regards to the inventory, that medley movers, I, I don't understand why medley movers was allowed to take anything out of my house without somebody representing me and some, someone representing the state 
listing everything that was going into those goddamn trucks. David Cram informed me that on December 13th, while that first search was being conducted, he said that they had taken pictures of the entire house, every room of the house, from every different angle that you could think of. That, to me, would be sufficient enough that if I seen those pictures, I could inventory the list for you. In other words, you give me a set of pictures, I'll, I'll go and inventory the list. And then you can compare it with the list that the state has to give you. But I, I'll tell you right now, I, I think that we're in a figure of somewhere in and around $50,000 worth of my stuff that was in the house. So yeah, everyone is looking to profit or advance their careers in one way or another. Except, of course, those that matter most, the victims' families. They just sit and wait, trying to cope with the agony of knowing or not knowing while everyone else scurries around battling with each other for the crumbs that are dropped. As the story gains more and more steam publicly, what starts to occur is that Gacy survivors start popping up ubiquitously and there are eager ears everywhere that are more than willing to share these survivors' stories. You see, up until Gacy was arrested and the story broke, these near-death survivors just had a story that they would tell friends and family about some weirdo that had picked them up and come onto them in an aggressive and terrifying manner and that they had somehow escaped from his clutches, sometimes unscathed, sometimes not. When his image started appearing nightly on the evening news, the number of people from the Chicagoland area that were staring at their TVs and looking at Gacy's image collectively saying, holy shit, that's the guy, is staggering. We told you early on in the podcast just how far-reaching the Gacy case was and is. The creep was an apex predator, the likes of which I'm not sure the world has ever seen. I know that Ted Bundy and Dahmer had some near-miss victims, but no one had the volume of escaped or released victims that Gacy had. This story that you were about to hear is from a potential Gacy victim's wife, as sadly her husband Tony passed recently. What makes this story even more unbelievable is that the subject of the story, Tony Gack, is none other than the father of Ryan Gack, who mixes and masters all of our original music for the show. Small world indeed. My late husband's encounter with uh, Gacy, or should I say the creep, uh, it had to have happened between 1967 and 1971. Um, I grew up in Chicago in the Austin neighborhood around Cicero and Washington and lived there till 1966 until I moved into Oak Park. First, I lived near uh, Austin and Madison, then near Harlem and Washington. So the Lake Street L was a constant during those years because Tony lived in the Chicago Austin neighborhood near Augusta and Laramie. Um, we started dating in October 67, just 10 days before his uh, 17th birthday. And I know the events happened between those years because we didn't have a car to get around and we used to go on dates to downtown to movies or Geno's East or 
hang out in Old Town and the best and fastest way was to take the Lake Street L. Um, after a date one night, he dropped me off at home and was making his way home by taking the L and taking the L to Laramie and then taking the Laramie bus up north. It was after midnight and it was about, oh, I don't know. I'm thinking it was between November and January sometime because he said it was really cold out and he'd been waiting for the bus for a while and there was no bus in sight and and it wasn't really that far to go from Laramie to Augusta but he, he was tired and he just didn't feel like uh, walking and you know making his way home so a guy pulls up and asked him if he needs a ride and he told me later that the guy just looked like a regular guy and no big deal he was you know dressed kind of normal looked like a you know just a regular kind of guy so he decides yeah what the heck I'll take a ride I'm tired I'm cold I'll get in so he gets in the car and they start talking and it's you know no big deal he says to him can I give you a, a ride directly to the door? And Tony says, no, just let me off at Augusta and I'll make my way home from there. And uh, he says, yeah, sure, fine. So he then says to Tony, he goes, do you play sports? And he says, yeah, he goes, <laughs> he starts to laugh and he says, yeah, I, uh, uh, I play all kinds of sports. I play everything, but my favorite's basketball. And that he was a guard. So then Gacy says to him, so uh, how many inches do you carry? So Tony says, well, I'm five foot nine, five ten. He goes, so, you know, that's about it. And he says, um, no, no. He goes, how many inches do you carry? So Tony's doing the math in his head and says, well, I don't know. I guess maybe it's 69, 70 inches. And he goes, no, no. He goes, how many inches you carry? Down there. And Tony freaked out. He just, he points, the guy, he points at his crotch. He goes, yeah, down there. And Tony says, oh, no, no. He, let me out. Let me out of the car. And he says, he goes, no, I'll drive you home. So they pull up to a light. Luckily, the light turned red at Augusta. And it was a neighborhood that, you know, Tony was familiar with and used to use gangways and stuff to cut through to get from his house to his friend's house. And he uh, he leaps out of the car because the car got stuck at a light, leaps out and cuts through the gangways and makes his way home. He was so freaked out. And when he got there, he called me and he told me what happened. You know, he said... This is, he goes, I got to tell you, he goes, this was the creepiest thing that ever happened to me. So then he says, um, years later, you know, the, the whole event couldn't have been more than 10 or 15 minutes because the ride from uh, Lake to Augusta is not that far. It's less than a mile, I think. And he says, it's, um, you know, it was pretty short and he was scared, but he said, yeah, it was no big deal. He's get, he goes, I, I'm over it. So then years later, all these events about Gacy are on the news. And 
Tony says, <laughs> he goes, hey, Trishy, remember that guy that picked me up years ago? And I go, yeah. And he says, remember, he goes, look at the TV. He goes, see that guy? I go, yeah. And he said, that was him. And I said, oh, my God, really? He says, yeah. He goes, I know it. I know for sure it was him. He said, until the day he died. <laughs> and and he, said, he always told the story to people who would bring up Gacy here and there. He'd say, yeah. He goes, I got picked up by him one night. He goes, but I lived to tell the story. Another one of Gacy's survivors that we've heard a bit about in earlier episodes, Jeff Rignall, made himself available to the press as well, as he had encountered nothing but doubt and stone walls from law enforcement and the courts when he had tried to seek justice in July of 78. If you recall, he was the victim who had been coaxed into Gacy's car and was chloroformed only to wake up, presumably, at his assailant's home, both hands strapped to a torture board, where he remained for two days. Two days which consisted of nothing other than being beaten, tortured, and raped repeatedly, all while being chloroformed over and over again, causing him to slip in and out of consciousness, with his reality amounting to nothing more than a cloudy haze of pain and sexual violation of the cruelest nature, with Jeff trying desperately to determine what was actually happening and what was but a vivid nightmare. Sadly, it was all a reality. His mind at some point, in a desperate measure of self-preservation, finally succumbed and shut down, leaving Jeff to wake beyond disoriented in what appeared to be a location very close to where he had been picked up. Bloody and beaten, he made his way to the nearest precinct of the Chicago Police Department to report the horrors that he had just been subjected to, only to have his complaints fall on deaf ears as CPD considered his account to be nothing more than a consensual gay encounter that got a little rough because, after all, there is no such thing as a gay man being raped, right? Wow. The fucking Chicago police, man. Unconscionable. You've heard us tell you that Jeff then took it upon himself to find the car and then the man who had done this to him, which he did. He then went armed with the information to press charges. They simply wouldn't agree to press felony charges, just a misdemeanor battery case, only to have that case against Gacy dismissed because Jeff Rignall missed a court date. He was literally bed sick in a hospital. In case you were wondering, Gacy went on to kill three more known victims, Landigan, Mazzara, and Peast, all of whom would not have died at Gacy's hands if only the Chicago police had done its fucking job. I simply cannot shit upon them enough. By the way, despite drifting in and out of consciousness, Rignall was absolutely certain that it was not just the creep that was attacking him, but in fact it was Gacy and another man. Now, Rignall will end up testifying during Gacy's trial, but for which side will he reveal his terrible tale to the jury? That's for later. In the meantime, let's check back into the courthouse to see exactly what goes down on the 29th. In Judge John White's courtroom, 
two things of consequence occur at the courthouse in displays on the morning of the 29th. First, as we've already told you, the case gets transferred to 26 in California, which is the equivalent to getting promoted from the minor leagues to the big leagues. This would be the one and only time the Gacy case would ever be heard in displays. But before the case was to leave his courtroom for good, Judge White made a point to enter an important order, which would be a standing order, meaning it had no shelf life. It was to be the order of the court for the duration of the case. On this morning, he entered what is referred to as a protective order, not to be confused with an order of protection. Now, the two have nothing to do with one another. The main thrust of a protective order is to direct the parties under the order, which in this case was the sheriff of Cook County, the lawyers for the state, the lawyers for the defense, witnesses, court reporters, and any court clerks for any grand jury considering this case, that they have an affirmative duty not to release or authorize the release of information or opinion for dissemination by any means of public communication in connection with the pending or imminent criminal litigation which they are associated. If there is a reasonable likelihood that such dissemination will interfere with a fair trial or otherwise prejudice the due administration of justice. Okay, Bob, plain English. Yeah, right? It's a gag order. It means shut the fuck up about the case to the press. Don't say peep to them. Judge White further ordered that all parties are forbidden from making any extrajudicial statements, which means outside the courtroom itself, relating to prior criminal record, the character or reputation of the accused, the existence or contents of any confession, admission, or statement given by the accused, the performance of any examination or tests of the accused, the identity, testimony, or credibility of prospective witnesses, the possibility of a guilty plea, or any opinion as to the accused's guilt or innocence, as to the merits of the case, or evidence in the case. Boom, that should do the trick. The media has been effectively frozen out by anyone and everyone that has anything to do with the case. Curious, how effective do you think this gag order will be in keeping the details of the Gacy case out of the press? Right, the gag order isn't worth the paper it's written on. And that's where the leaks come into play. No sources will be named, but you can bet your ass that every kernel of information will make its way to the press. Every grimy detail will be disclosed. And there is no way in hell that by the time this case goes to trial, that the defense will be able to find a fair and impartial jury. Shit, the mounting body count is front page news every day. In reality, by the time this case gets to trial, everyone in America will know every detail about the creep's life and the crimes that he's alleged to have committed. And remember that whole, you can't unring a bell thing I was talking about? Yeah. Well, that applies to everybody, all the time. So Gacy's next day in court was set for January 10th, 1979. The state would work in the interim to secure an indictment before that date. If you recall from an earlier, your favorite time, my favorite time, an indictment 
is secured by convening a grand jury in secret and presenting the probable cause that exists to them. And then they decide whether or not to hand down a true bill of indictment. Because there's no way in hell that the state would elect to conduct a preliminary hearing, thereby giving the defense the opportunity to cross-examine whatever cop they decide to put on the stand. Now, a grand jury indictment would be more than sufficient in making sure that the creep would be made to answer for his crimes. So at the close of the day, the dig will be shut down until after New Year's. So will the courts for that matter. In the meantime, Bill Kunkel and his team will be drafting up more search warrants for Gacy's house and property. Because remember, they have to be specific as to what they're searching for and where they're searching for it. It's not a free-for-all. And believe me, the state wants to dig up every square inch of Gacy's property. And they need new warrants to do so. And Kozenzak, fresh out of ideas, is suffering in silence as he continues to worry that the case that he fixed so perfectly just might fall apart at the seams. I mean, what are the odds that the guy that he decides to fix the case on turns out to be the most prolific serial killer that the country has ever known? And what of the creep? What's he up to after his failed suicide attempt over at Sir Mac Memorial? Well, I have to imagine that he's desperately trying to come up with a new plan. I wonder what it'll be. I bet you're wondering too. And I'll tell you all about it on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Some quick shout outs to my partner in crime, Darren Wood. Thank you for all that you do, my brother. To Taras and Ryan, thank you for the best original music in the game. To Alex Carver and Corey Ridings, thank you for the phenomenal imagery that you create for the pod. And to my wife, Allie, thank you for all that you do and your constant support. And we'd like to give a shout out to our Patreon members, our defense team members. We adore you guys and we appreciate your support so, so much. It means so much to us. And to all the listeners out there, of course, as always, we always, always appreciate you listening consistently. It means the world to us as well, because without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Thank you, Mom. Thanks, Darren. Thanks, you, bud. Thanks, man. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know exactly where the body's at.